A very good morning, everyone. It is so good to see so many of you back here in Bishan. It is my privilege to be able to share with you God's Word today. One of my favorite movies about battles and war is Braveheart. Now, spoilers ahead, especially for those who have not watched the movie at all. But I uh, just like uh, Tim Keller who says that maybe if the movie's been 15 years older, it's okay to tell you the whole thing. This is about 27 years ago. Wow, really old man last time. Now, even though it's not historically accurate and there's a lot of embellishment and dramatization, I still find my heart pumping and my adrenaline flowing in my bloodstream when I see the Scots who are outnumbered and they are the underdogs fighting against and winning over the stronger and the superior armies of the English. And who can forget the famous Sons of Scotland speech? Major spoiler ahead, okay? I'll read you a little bit. Okay, not quite a bit of the, the speech actually. He says, I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do without freedom? Will you fight? Okay, very quiet. Okay. <laughs> then the veteran soldier, one of them mocking, said, Fight against that? No, we will run and we will live. I, I can't speak Scottish, but try my best. Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least for a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our freedom, our lives, but they, never take that, but they will never take our freedom. And then they fight. Now, the movie was in 1995, and I was 17 years old. And it was so inspiring that on the basis of this speech alone, I had made many decisions, bad decisions, as a teen and a young adult, that I've come to regret. Um, but today, if you were to base your decision on scriptures of Nehemiah 4, I guarantee you wouldn't regret like what I did. Why are, we, why are we so drawn to such acts of bravery and courage, especially in the face of overwhelming odds and certain death? Because I believe deep down inside us, we yearn to be courageous. We yearn to be bold. We want to experience victory. And even if we may lose in the battle, we believe that to die for what we hold true to our hearts is one of the best ways to live. To quote part of the movie, and uh, a bit of a spoiler, every man dies, not every man lives. But the idea of living and being prepared to fight and maybe die for something is not just a fantasy, but a reality. And I believe it is a calling, a calling for all who believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why it is important for us here this morning to hear what God wants to teach us from Nehemiah chapter 4, this very short narrative. For we are being asked to fight and labor in the midst of enemies. 
If there's one point on my message for this morning, it will be this. We must pray and be prepared to labor and fight for God's work because God fights for us. We must pray and be prepared to labor and fight for God's work because God fights for us. And this short Bible story has three lessons to help us learn about laboring and fighting with God. And why is this significant? Because we are God's people. And you know what? We are part of His army. And whether we like it or not, we are in a war. We will also encounter problems, persecutions, ridicule, suffering, as because we are followers of Christ. So how should we respond to these things? And the third thing, why is it relevant? Because God is still working and building today. He is still working and building today. And so my first point is about how we must pray to God because the fight belongs to God. We must pray to God because the fight belongs to God. Up to this point in chapter 3, before the beginning of chapter 4, God's people were focused on rebuilding and repairing the wall. They were united and they were progressing well. There were no distractions and nothing to divert their energy and time and effort working together in building the wall together. But in this chapter, God's people are going to learn that not only are they helping to build, but they must learn how to fight in a war. And I think there is much to teach us as Christians here today. Because too often when you and I serve in ministry, or when we seek to share the gospel with someone, a loved one, a family member, a friend, a colleague, or simply just trying to live our Christian faith, faithful to God and in holiness and godliness, we think that's all to it. But we do not realize that there are enemies lurking around, that there are enemies just like the days of Nehemiah who is seeking to ridicule you, to despise you, to possibly stop what you're doing and if not possible and if not destroy you and so that's why we need to hear this message and we need to learn and not only that the enemy that we face today are far deadlier stronger wiser than Sanballat and Tobiah therefore the question is how can we overcome them read with me follow with me in Nehemiah chapter 4 as, I, as we go through the passage together, we see the, from verse 1 to 3 that this is the first wave of, of, of attack. Now, what is happening is that they are responding to the building of the wall in chapter 3. They've been very successful, the people are united, and they're progressing very well. But in chapter 4, the enemies have been observing and they are not happy. They are so emotionally charged up that Nehemiah records for us that verse 1, Sanballat, when he heard, he was angry and greatly enraged. You know, you, 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 it's very not often do you see a person angry and enraged. And these two verbs 
in Hebrew tells us that it's a very unique kind of uh, situation, it's not common, that this person was really, really, really upset. And often it kind of reveals that there's a personal interest in it. He's personally involved and he's absolutely angry. Now why? What is the cause for such emotionally charged feelings? Well, one possibility is that because the building of the wall and the city was a threat to his existence. In the days of Artaxerxes, in the days of the, the Persian, what they will do is they will conquer cities and in trying to destroy their unification or the ability for them to come back to attack them again, they will capture them and spread them across the whole region. And so it is very likely that Sanballat did not, does not belong to uh, Jerusalem. He was from another country and was transported back to place in Jerusalem. And so, and so now that he has a new land to occupy, possibly a new future, this is something that he can be secure in, he can start something over again. But what is going to threaten that is that the people who used to occupy this city, this place, Jerusalem, called the Jews, are coming back to retake over that place. And so in so doing, Sanballat's future is at stake and people like him. And so they don't want that. They want them to leave. They don't want, to come, they don't want the Jews to come back. And very likely, this is the reason why he's so angry and he feels very threatened. And so what does he do? His first salvo attack is that he jeers at them. Now, why jeering? Firstly, it's because it can be a very effective weapon in the enemy's arsenal. Because the purpose of jeering is to discourage, to cast doubt in the work, and possibly maybe even to create disunity. So he raised five, no less than five, rhetorical questions about the ridiculous idea of building this wall. And this rhetorical question, it begs the answer of a no. So for example, he begins to attack them as a race. What are these, not Jews, feeble Jews? They are weak and feeble, casting a spurgeon upon them. Will they restore it for themselves? No. Will they sacrifice? No. Will they finish up in a day? No. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? No. And so this is all meant to discourage all of the people there. And you can be sure that everyone is within a year short of Sam Balat's questions. And not only is he speaking not to himself, but to an audience who is like an echo chamber who would support his ridicule because he's speaking before his brothers, likely those of his same uh, nation, and the army of Samaria. And of course, there is someone who's adding fuel to the fire of uh, mockery by Tobias' command. That if a fox goes on it, he will break down their stone wall. Everything is just to, to attack the people's hearts and mind in this work. So what is the lesson here? The lesson here is that prayer, prayer must be our first response in every situation. Prayer must be the first response in our every situation, both as individuals and as a church collectively. Everything that we do must be in prayer. John Bunyan, who is famous for writing the Pilgrim's Progress, writes this about prayer. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. 
Prayer is so essential that it must be the first response in all of us as Christians. Regardless of the situation that we face, we must respond in praying. And in Nehemiah, you will see that prayer is the first response of Nehemiah and the people. How do we build this response? This is something that I remember when I was a regular in the, in the military. Regular, not, I mean, not regular size. I was a... I signed on, okay? And, uh, yeah, regular size too. So, <clears throat> one of the things that I had to do was to do uh, military drills, how to teach the men how to conduct drills. So, one of the most simplest drills is take cover. Now, for the women, take cover means not hiding under an umbrella or running to a tree or shelter. Take cover means that you quickly prone down and hide, okay? If you hear a shot or you hear an explosion, take cover is the first thing. Now, what we are trying to do is to inculcate this as a response to the soldiers so that when the actual battle happens, they are not standing around saying, hey, take cover, where, uh, uh, what should we do? Uh, hey, uh, down here, very hard down here. Hey. No, we are helping them to train during the drill, during the training, to help them to see that why taking cover is important, to teach them, explain, and we discuss why this. So when we say take cover, sometimes the men, the good ones, will straight away prone, Okay, to keep themselves as a small target or some will write, not right, hide behind a tree, okay, not too bad. Some more ridiculous, hide behind a bush as if the bullet will see the bush, okay, better wolf from the bush. And some even worse, take cover, stand, stand, huh? take cover, take cover, take cover. So what we are trying to do is to train these men so that when the actual fight happens, they don't have to think, they just respond. And that is something we must do. I feel and I am a I'm concerned for us as Christians, particularly in Singapore, not just locally in ARPC, but all Christians around in Singapore, that our first response is seldom to pray. Our first response is to, what are some of my resources? What are some of my ideas? Who are my contacts? Who can I call for help? But rather than we pray. Because we have been so effective in solving our problems so quickly without the aid of prayer that we don't need to pray. But here, Nehemiah, even though he could have responded or retaliated, he did not. The first part of call that he did was to pray. And that's why for us, the lesson that we need to learn, because this is God's fight, is that we need to pray. Because by not praying, we are taking the fight on our own. And I can assure you, you and I will lose the battle. Because this is a fight that we cannot win. It is God's battle only God can have victory. And that may very well explain why sometimes, if not often, when we don't respond in prayer and we try every and other means to try to solve our predicament, we fail and we are discouraged and we wonder why God is not helping us because we didn't pray to Him first. But for Nehemiah, he knows. Pray because this is God's fight. God's battle, He will fight. This is not our battle. We are joining in God's battle and God will have victory. Not only that, these are God's enemies. These are not Nehemiah enemies. These are not the Jews' enemies. These are God's enemies. Because in Nehemiah's prayer, at the last part of verse 5, he invokes God that they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. You see, Sanballat and Tobiah think they are actually attacking only the Jews physically. 
but little did they realize that behind them is God. It was God who ordained the people to come together to, to Jerusalem. It was God who allowed them to be able to rebuild. So by opposing this work, they are opposing God. The work that is being done can only be defended by God. And God will defend because they are His enemies. And the last one is I mentioned earlier, God is the only one who can defeat these enemies. Not Nehemiah, not you, not I. It is only God. And just to, just to apply to our direct, I mean, to our current situation, we don't face physical enemies today. But Paul already has alluded to us that our enemies is not flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, darkness, far greater and far numerous than us. How do you think you can fight with them without prayer? That is why we must pray. The first response for all Christians for the church is prayer. Let's look at Nehemiah's prayer and see what he says. In Nehemiah's prayer, verse 4 to 5, it can be summed up in one idea called, We are despised. He goes forth, Hear, O our God. And what we hear is we see Nehemiah praying. And in Nehemiah, what he's praying in the first verse 4 is he's praying basically like for a poetic justice. God, they have set a trap for us. They have set the, 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 the snare. Let them fall into the trap instead of us. So let the thorns be turned back upon them and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Exactly what they are seeking that Nehemiah and God's people would happen to them. And so that's what he's asking. He's not asking for anything more but exactly what is the just deserts for what they have asked. But what happens next in verse 5 may feel, make us feel a little bit more uncomfortable as Christians. Because in verse 5, Nehemiah says, Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from their sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Many... Um, Scholars and commentators have identified that verse 5 belongs to a very unique and in some ways rare group of prayers called imprecatory prayers that we seldom come across um, in our own reading of God's Word. So what are imprecatory prayers? Imprecatory prayers basically are prayers that we invoke God's judgment, which would include destruction, calamity, and even death upon the people that, we are, that they are praying for against uh, their enemies. Now, you must remember that in this context of Nehemiah, in the Old Testament, this is a nation that has encountered many enemies in the past. And all their enemies, if they had their opportunity, would destroy them and would not show mercy. And often, for the Jews... Their understanding of salvation, God's salvation and deliverance is always in the context of deliverance of, from the enemies themselves. Example, the Exodus story, how the Egyptians were the enemies and the only way for them to see the great salvation and deliverance of God was for God to destroy the entire, not destroy, but it was to create so much problem for the entire nation and to destroy the Egyptian army. That is how they have understood God's deliverance and how God will respond in destroying their enemies. So it is not 
unusual. And we shouldn't feel that this is something wrong for Nehemiah to pray like that against their enemies. Because also remembering that the enemies of God's people usually are enemies of God, God, of God. And so that's why to pray for judgment was not wrong. And so that's why for Nehemiah and others alike in the Old Testament, the enemies, the vocabulary of having enemies in their prayer is always very common. Just by reading the Psalms, you will see that and again and again. But this particular imprecatory prayer is a bit more unique because they are calling God to intervene immediately and to bring about such judgment and calamity that it is um, terrible, I would say. And they dare to do this because they know God is a God of justice and His judgments are righteous. And they would pray because they recognize that the enemies are clearly evil and wicked. And often without cause, they will try to harm God's people. That's why we find most of the imprecatory prayers in the Psalms. And often when the psalmist sees a situation there is dire and terrible injustice is happening, especially to God's people, he cries out to God to, for God to do something against the enemies. And often these enemies, if not, most of, if not all the time, the enemies that the, the imprecatory press are called upon are not personal enemies of a, that you have with a, a personal agenda, but rather it is an enemy of the nation and of God. So there are a few things that we can learn about imprecatory press. One is that it is always about the injustice and how God is a God of justice to intervene. The second is that the psalmist or the person praying is trusting in God's sovereignty of whether he would judge that enemy itself. And the last one is to save God's people. So the question that we have that is begging us when we read this as New Testament, as Christians today, is that is there a place for imprecatory prayers for us? I guess in the past, maybe I would have said no. But given the current situation that we find ourselves in in the world, I think there is a place. They are definitely not a common part of our daily prayers. If every day you are playing imprecatory prayer, I think you are salah. You are definitely don't understand. Uh, it should occupy maybe one or two percent of your prayer time, I think. But it's definitely a rarity. But is there a place? Yes. I think when we see something clearly heinous, evil, wicked. And that the person, all persons, are committing something that's outrightly wrong against God, like bringing violence and untold suffering to innocent civilians like women and children. It should cause us to feel indignant of that evil and that injustice, and that we cry out to God to intervene to stop. And so, case in point, is it okay for us to pray imprecatory prayers? against Putin? I believe so if you are convinced if this man is evil and has to be stopped at all costs before more innocent blood are shed and lives lost and destroyed. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 to 10, we read of how the martyrs of God themselves on the altar 
who have been slain for the word of God and for the witnesses they have borne. They are crying with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They are calling for justice, not more, but justice. An imprecatory prayer is a way for calling in justice. And so Nehemiah prays. And what he's, what he's praying is that God will not forgive them of their sins, which implies that God will judge them eventually for their sins, their sins of despising and jeering at God's people and ultimately despising and jeering God and provoking Him to anger because they are against God and His people. And because Nehemiah's first response is prayer and trusting in God in all that is happening what happens? Verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Because Nehemiah chose not to retaliate, but trusted in the Lord in prayer, the work of God continued and progressed well. The work of God continued and progressed well. The second point is we must be prepared to labor and fight because this is God's work. We must be prepared to labor and fight because this is God's work. After, even though despite the jeering, the work was not halted, the second wave of attack commences in verse 7 and 8. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Verse 11, And our enemies say they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So the enemies respond even in greater intensity. More enemies are gathered. If you were to read the group of people, Sanballat, likely to represent Samaria, would have been on the north. Tobiah, representing the Ammonites, would represent the east. Um, the Arabs would represent the people, the, the foreigners on the south. And the Ashdodites would represent the people on the west. So clearly we can see that they are being surrounded, outnumbered and surrounded. And this time, they are not going to stop at just jeering. They are prepared to kill. And so the, if, then the people are affected by it because in verse 10 and 12, we see them doubting. We see them questioning. And they are wondering whether can they complete the work because they say, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild. And so they have been discouraged. Their hearts and their minds are affected. They are not as united. Furthermore, there is the group of people. You see, those who are building the walls are stationed in the city itself. But there are also remaining Jews who are living outside of the city, on the outskirts. These are their families, their own relatives. And so they too were being affected or influenced by the dis- or misinformation by the enemies. And so they too also heard about these things and seeking also unintendedly discourage those who are in building. Verse 12, At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. And so what is happening is that 
the effectiveness of this disinformation has threatened the work and the people, there's a possibility that the people would disengage from the work and then will leave. And so what happens? What is the next response? Give up? No. The response is to pray again and this time be prepared, which we see in verse 9. In verse 9, again, we see this time not Nehemiah, but now collectively the people. And we prayed out to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So wonderfully, again, the people continue the practice. First response, pray. But this time, we also see a second part. Now, in this part of the chapter itself, even though prayer is mentioned, but the emphasis is not so much on the prayer as in the first part, but rather in the preparation work. And here we see the harmony of both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of the people. The sovereignty of God is that they pray to God that God will do His work. He will protect, He will fight, He will defend. But the people will also do that part of their work. Because why? Because in this great work that God is doing, He is not doing alone. He invites His people to participate in that work. God does not just want to do it on His own. He could do it just as God could easily destroy and bring down the walls of Jericho with a shout by the people. He can build the walls all by Himself. But He is giving us the privilege to participate in that work that He's doing. And so the people are now prepared. They must labor and be prepared to fight. So what Nehemiah does is that quickly he stops all the work and he arrays everyone in front, behind the walls, in prepared to defend. Because we see him in verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. So prepared to defend. The, the ranged weapons will be the bows to attack the enemies if they charge forwards. And if the enemies breach the wall, the swords and the spears will come forth. So the people stopped all work and now are prepared because they know that the enemies are serious. They are outnumbered and the enemies are prepared to kill. And so what Nehemiah does in rallying them is that he encourages them and his encouragement is worth noting, uh, worth noting for us itself because they, he knows that they are afraid. They have not been to war. These are not soldiers. These are citizens. He calls them, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid. Why? The people are afraid. And when people are afraid, what do you do? You point them to God. When you are afraid, who do you look to? To the enemies? No. You look to God. And he says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Nehemiah is reminding the people that God is great and awesome. And Nehemiah knows from history that no army has ever defeated God when God is in the battle. That is where his confidence is. He knows that no army can defeat them so long as God is with the people. And so they will have victory. But the question is, why would God be there? Why would God be with them? And the answer is because this work is God's work. This is God's work. God will defend. God 
has been working and is still working. He has been working before the arrival of Nehemiah and he will continue the work after Nehemiah lives, leaves. And so because this is the work of God, it is his work, God will rise up to defend and protect that work and that people. And he will defend them. And that is the confidence. The second thing not that Nehemiah draws their attention is whom they are fighting with. To fight for their brothers, their sons, their daughters, their wives and their homes. I don't know whether in the early, I think it was February, late February, when Russia invaded Ukraine, to the surprise to, I guess, many of us who did not expect. And then when they began to muster all the men to come together, and there was martial law, and the men were not allowed to leave, women and children were allowed. And there were, very, there were many scenes, very heartbreaking scenes, of fathers, not of fathers, but of husbands, saying their last goodbyes to their wives, fathers in tears and their children in tears, hugging the last time and kissing the last time, not knowing when will they be able to see one another again. And loved ones embracing each other for the final time because they know that lives will be lost and and later on some of them were asked why are you why, why are you staying and why are you fighting and many of the men in the interviews say that they are fighting not for themselves they are fighting for their children they are fighting for their wives they are fighting for their family they are fighting for their home and for the country ukraine they are not fighting for themselves. And because they are fighting for someone else, fighting for people whom they love, fighting for the home that they love, that it is theirs, they are prepared to die and give their lives up. It reminds me of a quote how one man said that one free man defending his home is more powerful than ten hired soldiers. And it is precisely of this fortitude this love for their people and their country, the, this, the bravery of willing to die, that it helped the Ukrainian soldiers to be able to resist the Russian advancement and even to repel the attack. They never expected that. It surprised the entire world. This is what Nehemiah was appealing to, to fight not for yourselves, but for the one next to you. In World War II, when they were doing their research, they realized that many of the units, when they grouped a lot of the units together that, that were acquainted with each other from the same town or city or state, or even family or relatives, they fought bravely and they died bravely. And they did things that no normal person would dare to do because they were willing to die for each other. But because they, they grouped the units together with people whom they knew and they loved, right, a lot of the units were obliterated because they were willing to die. So the policy changed and they began to spread um, the, the soldiers across the units rather than to lump them into a single unit. That was one of the inspiration for the show, uh, for the show um, Saving Private Ryan. Because they know that when I, when I know this person next to me and we are all under fire, we would dare to die and fight for each other. 
and Nehemiah knew that. And so because they prayed and they were prepared to fight for God and for the people that they are that next to them, what happened? Verse 15, did the work stop? No. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that our God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. The work continued. The enemy were frustrated. They would, the enemy were discouraged instead. The people were encouraged and united and were mustered together and they came together and continued. And therefore, the work of rebuilding continued and progressed. The last point that I want to go quickly before I want to apply, which I think is important, is that our God fights for us. Why? In verse 20. In the place where you hear the, tr- the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Why will God fight for us? You know why? Because God is building His people. Not only because of this incident and the people learned how to rely upon the, upon the Lord, the people of God grew united and stronger and wiser. And from here onwards, new arrangements were made. They were not just only laboring building, but they were building in preparedness to defend and fight. And so the people of God were all coming together. Priests, lay people of different occupations, men, women, all from different regions, all were coming together as one. And this is what God was doing. He was building His people. Now, Nehemiah... It's not a book just about leadership and about building walls. On the glance it is, it might seem that way, but there is a deeper point in Nehemiah. And the deeper focus of Nehemiah is that God is not building walls. God is building His people. That is why you see that when Nehemiah mustered and rallied the people, he didn't say, do not be afraid of them, remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for the wall that you built. He didn't say that. It sounds strange, right, and silly if he had said that. Why? Because it would be obvious the people had spent hours, laboured so much, worked so hard to build the wall. But it is not the wall that they fight for, it is for the people that they fight for. And so that's why Nehemiah is about building, God-building people. And so if I apply to our context today, what is very clear today for us as a church, as a community of God's people, what is God doing? God is building the community. God is building relationship. The church is not about the building. The church is about you and I, the people. And so that's why we must be prepared to labor and fight, not for the building or for ministry, but for one another, for our relationship, to build in each other. To be part of God's family is always about building relationship, learning how to love one another, how to love one another in in love, in truth, in forgiveness, eager to encourage each other and to build one another and to find the opportunity to serve one another. So how do all these things apply to us today? Today, will God still fight for us? I will say a resolutely yes. And how can I be so confident? How can I be confident that God will fight for us? We are a lot more like Nehemiah than we realize because Nehemiah's faith and knowledge of God did not stem on the present but on the past. He knew that how God had scattered the people because of their sins and idolatry. 
and how he knew this is what was happening. But he also knew that God will restore and make the people return if they return back to him. And God will forgive and restore them. And I know that God will fight for us today because he has fought for us on our behalf, just as he has also in fighting died for us too. The great enemy called sin, death, and Satan. Jesus fought for us. But in his fighting, he died for us too. But only in dying and rising from the grave did he have victory, so that we don't have to die for it. And that's why I know that if God was willing to fight for us and die for us then, why would he not fight for us today in building our community as God's people? The question now is, if God is willing to fight for you, would you be willing to fight for God? To labor and fight for as a people, for God and for this group of people here today? And I believe this chapter in Nehemiah demands three things of us. The first, on this side of the cross, we may not pray often like Nehemiah that way, but we pray differently because of what Christ has done. We, can, we must pray for the work that God has given to us and we must pray for our enemies. Augustine, one of the early theologians that we all, a lot of theologians look up to, he says this, You have enemies, for who can live on this earth without them? But take heed to yourself, love them. In no way can your enemy hurt you by his violence as you hurt yourself if you do not love them. Did you get what he said? If you do not love your enemy, you will end up hurting yourself more than your enemy could ever hurt you. As Christians, our mandate is to love our enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, I just read quickly how Jesus telling in, in, the Beatitude, in the Sermon of the Mount, tells his disciples how that we must love our enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As believers right now, our part is to pray and to love our enemies because Christ prayed and loved us while we were his enemies. The second is we must labor and fight. We must labor and fight. As a good soldier of Jesus Christ, in, chapter, in, Matthew, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. But allow me to read this particular quote by this man who fought in World War I. And in his mind, he was fighting for America. But allow me to use it in our context. How can we take his creed, his quote upon us? I paraphrase. Christ will win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. That must be the way we labor and fight for Christ. And the last is we must join and build one another. Join in God together in participating in building one another. 
God is no longer calling us to build walls to divide and separate us from other people and other cultures. No, He is building us to be united under Christ. As 1 Peter tells us too, you come to Him as a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You are the stones that God is building. And you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So that's why we are called to participate with God to build one another up. And so I pray and hope that this short passage in Nehemiah chapter 4 will move you to pray, not for just only the work but for our enemies, but to labour and to fight laboriously and furiously for the Lord's work and to participate with God to build one another up as His people. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this word that You have given to us. It is indeed an inspiring word, but yet, Father, may it not just stay at our minds, but invade our hearts and take over our spirits and cause us not to leave here as the same as we came this morning, but different, moved by your word, that we are your people and we are called to march on a different drum beat as the world to, because we are the army of God and Christ is our captain that we follow after. Bless us, Father, and may we as a local church in our small ways do our part in building, in praying and laboring all for the cause and the glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Hand the time over to Christy and her team. Shall we all rise and sing the closing song, O Church, Arise. Say the day are strong. 